Well, if you have your Bible with you or your smart device, if you'll go to Matthew 5, that's where we're sitting for the next couple of weeks as we look at uh, the Beatitudes. Uh, And as we get started, I wanted to let you know something. If you were here last week, uh, you may remember our service ended abruptly. If you were here last week, you remember that? Because remember we had a medical, like middle of a song, the whole thing shut down. And we asked you to go out this door right up here. The guy, the guy who had, he had a stroke last week in our service. And I just want you to know he's here today. So yeah, yeah. So yeah, a lot of prayer and uh, we really appreciate that. That's, that was so cool. So um, at any rate, okay. So you've got Matthew five. So I want to ask you this as we get started. Do you like to laugh? Is, so for me, laughing is one of the things I enjoy the most, um, and so uh, I've tried to make that my job because I've heard if you can get paid for what you like to do, then, you know, but so far, uh, no offers on that. Um, but, uh, but a friend of mine knows that I like to laugh, and so he sent me this email. He sent this to me, so check this out. Yeah, I know. It's what, that's what I did, uh, kind of, uh, when I first saw it as well. But so another buddy of mine sent me some pictures as well. Check these out. So here's the first one. Is that great? Check out the next one. I think they misunderstood drive through There's one more. I mean, even if it's just a little, you know what I'm saying? I don't know if people who laugh actually live longer, if we just enjoy the time that we have uh, while we're here. But I wanted you to see those and kind of think about that for this next question. I wanted to know if you like to laugh for this question. Do you think Jesus does? Do you think Jesus, uh, do you think he laughed when he was on earth? Do you think he laughs even today? Uh, And I'm asking that because we're in this series. If you weren't here last week when we started, we were in a series called The End of Me. And we are looking at uh, Jesus's most, it's probably his most famous sermon. And we're looking at at what's probably the most famous part of his most famous sermon. We call them the Beatitudes. And each of them begins with a blessing. And these statements give us a glimpse into some of the core values of Jesus's kingdom and the foundational equations of how life works in God's economy. And, uh, and they all have to do, by the way, with coming to the end of you, because when you get to the end of where, when you get to the, to the last part of what you're able to do, that's where God begins. And, uh, and, and he takes off. That's where real life is. And so here's the thing that I shared last week, and it's on your notes. I wanted to make sure you took this home. But the life that Jesus invites us to, in case you didn't notice yet, is not just countercultural. It's not just that we're going against the flow. It's actually counterintuitive most of the time. Right. More often than not, it's not only just going against the flow of our culture. It doesn't even feel right. Sometimes it does just doesn't make sense with what we with what we know. And as an example, the next beatitude that Jesus speaks is this one. He says, blessed are those who mourn. Just say it. Not what I would have said. I would have said, blessed are those who laugh, right? Because that's, I would want people to know, why is this one even included? Because Jesus seems to be saying the exact opposite, right? Because if you're not laughing, you're crying, right? And we live with that saying, you finish it. I'll start it. You finish it. Laugh and the whole world laughs with you. Cry and, right, you cry alone. Why in the world would Jesus say, 
blessed are those who mourn. Maybe, maybe it just didn't mean what we think. When we think of the word mourn, maybe that's not what he meant, right? Because Greek to English, you lose a little something in the translation. Maybe the word he's talking about isn't what we talk about when we say mourning. Except he is. Uh, I want to make sure you know that mourning was a subject Jesus' contemporaries knew a lot about because life expectancy in first century was about 20 years or so. It only rose significantly in the 19th and 20th centuries uh, when science, when medical science scored breakthroughs in combating mass epidemics and reducing infant mortality and preventing mothers' deaths in childbirth. A baby born today can anticipate, if you have a child born today, a female child, she uh, can expect to live to be 81 years old. Male children can expect to live to be 76 years old. But by the late 1800s, our great-great-great-grandparents could expect an average of about 34 years. And so Jesus' audience, and they understood what mourning was all about. That was something they did, not, not just every once in a while, but, but actually frequently. And when Jesus uses the word for mourning, by the way, he uses the strongest word available to him. That word mourning means utter sorrow. It means a, a desperate, it's, listen, it's this ache in your heart that you actually feel. You, you, you feel this. It's the sorrow that is expressed in someone's face. It's just like they can't hide it. It's reflected. It's reflected in how they stand. It's reflected in the way they say things. I mean, you just can't miss it. And it's defined as the kind of grief that takes hold of a man that cannot be hidden. It is unrestrainable to our eyes. You cannot stop the tears. Mourning is not being blessed. Mourning is suffering. Mourning is loss. It's pain. It's regret. It's tears. Mourning happens when things don't go the way we had planned or hoped that they would go, when life is way more difficult than we had anticipated that it would be. And maybe you learned this early on when your mom and dad sat down with you and they were explaining to you what was going on inside your family and they used the word divorce. But what they really meant was that the dream of what your family was going to become had come to an end. Or maybe you learned this in a message from a friend that you thought was going to be the one for the rest of your life, telling you it wasn't going to happen. Or maybe you got the call from the hospital saying you needed to get there quickly, there's been an accident. Or a note at work that said your job has been eliminated. Or a text you weren't supposed to see that revealed the affair. Or a doctor explaining to you that you're not able to have children. Because here's what I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess that more of us than care to admit know those tears. And my guess is there are some in the room right now whose chest is just a little bit tight. Because it's not a, it's not a long ago memory. Or if it was, it's been brought really close again this morning. You know what it's like to have your heart dashed to pieces. And, you want, and in the moment when you're going through it, you wonder if you're even going to survive this thing. And if you do survive, do you want to survive? Just so you know, that's what Jesus is talking about. So the question is, why in the world would he say that those people are blessed? A blessed life, by any definition of any normal person, would be a life free from mourning, not a life marked by it. 
which is why, by the way, we do everything we can to get away from uh, suffering in the first place. And then when we do suffer, because suffering is inevitable, we certainly don't want to mourn. And then when we catch ourselves mourning, right, we do everything in our power to make it go away. We numb ourselves with entertainment. We just figure out a way to keep our mind busy or we medicate it with drinking or shopping or working or partying because it is human nature to avoid suffering. But consider the opposite. I said earlier that the opposite of mourning or crying is laughing. That's, that's not entirely accurate. Read the negative of what Jesus uh, said to us. Blessed are those who do not or cannot mourn. Think about that. Do you see what Jesus is saying? <laughs> He's saying not just blessed are those who are hurting, but blessed are the people who have the capacity to hurt, who have the ability to know, who can be, who have the ability to be in pain. Listen, it's, as is always the case with Jesus, he knew exactly what he was saying, and he's exactly correct. We may not, it may not be the most comforting, but we understand what he's saying. Because in Matthew 5, 4, when he gives us this beatitude, mourning happens when things don't go the way we planned or life is more difficult or painful than we thought it would be. And here's what we find in our, in our suffering. There's this deep void, right, that, that's missing something because whatever it was that we loved, whether maybe it was a thing or some things or a person or a position, whatever it was that was filling that space. And by the way, I'm not talking about bad things. This, this doesn't have to be bad things. These can be very good things. But when they're gone, they leave this cavity in your heart and this emptiness. And when that's gone, all you have is God to fill that up. So in the space between our expectations and our reality, which, by the way, is when we come to the end of us, when we get to that place where our expectations end and reality begins, this is where God shows up. And we begin to get a glimpse of who he is. And that's all we truly need. And listen, there's a couple of areas in our life where God is watching to see if we actually are able to mourn. I've I've got them written on your notes. The first one's this. I come to the end of me. When, when I'm able to mourn for my sins, when I do something that I know uh, goes against what God wants for me, what he wants for me, uh, and I can mourn for it. King David wrote this, Psalm 51. He said, you do not delight in sacrifice or I'd bring it. You don't delight in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Look at what he says in chapter 34. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Do you know when I share this passage most often? It's when I'm at a funeral. Because I think people need to hear, especially at those moments, God is not far from you. He understands what's going on in your life right now. And he is very near to you, especially when you're crushed in spirit. That's when I share those verses. But do you know when King David wrote those verses? King David wrote it after the prophet Nathan came to him and he was confronted with the affair that he had had with Bathsheba, that he had committed adultery with her. And so Nathan comes and this is David's response to that. And I just want you to know, this isn't about putting on a sad face. Because in Matthew 6, the next chapter, Jesus actually addresses that with the religious leaders. They would look sad, but their heart wasn't broken. And Jesus said it was hypocrisy. They were being hypocrites. And it was hurtful to the kingdom. And sometimes, listen, we don't grieve our sins. If we're to be honest, sometimes we grieve that we get caught. 
Maybe you've heard the story about the little boy who was playing in the backyard and a rat darted out from behind the garbage cans and he killed it. And he picked it up by the tail and he ran inside to show his mom. However, he was so excited to show his mom this dead rat, he didn't notice the preacher had stopped by the house to visit. And so he runs into the living room and he says, Mom, look, look what I found. I hit it with my baseball bat and then I kicked it and then I stomped it and then I kicked it and then I stomped it. And that's when he saw the preacher sitting in his living room. And he took off his hat and he put it over his heart and he said, and that's when the Lord called him home. Uh, We all have moments like that, right? Where we're mourning getting caught. But what Jesus is talking about, not just, it's not about being caught. It's just about the presence of sin in our lives. It is the morning that sin has made its way in. Listen, it's the recognition that we have no control over sin being in the world. But it's my choices that bring sin into my world. And it separates me from God. And I can't, I just can't seem to be good enough on my own. And when I get to the point where I realize I can't be good enough on my own, I come to the end of me. And at the end of me is where God shows up most powerfully in our lives. That's why Paul reminds us when he writes to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 5, he says that while we were still sinners, this is how God demonstrates his love to us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. According to what Jesus has said, when it breaks my heart that I have broken God's heart, that's when I'm blessed because he shows up to comfort me. Let me say it one more time. When my heart is broken because I have broken God's heart, not because I've been caught, but because I know I've broken his heart by what I've done or said or thought by something, something I'm involved in, that's when I've come to the end of me and that's when he shows up. Let me give you one more. It's on your notes. I come to the end of me when I mourn for others. So it's not just for the sin in my life, but when I can actually mourn for someone else. On your notes, I've got a quote by Billy Graham. He said, if I would know the measure of my love for God, I would simply observe my love for people around me. My compassion for others is an accurate gauge of my devotion to God. So let me ask you this. Do the problems that others are experiencing, do they hurt your heart? Are you able to hurt for them? Abraham Lincoln said, I'm sorry for the man who can't feel the whip when it is laid on the other man's back. Do do you, does your heart hurt when you see the influence of evil in the lives of people around you? Families who didn't just lose their father, they were abandoned by him. When When you see women who are haunted for years, with the firsthand knowledge that abortion is not the easy or the quick solution. When you look around your neighborhood and you see children who are growing up in a house, but they have no idea what a home is. People who have worn the scars of abuse, whether it's physical, sexual, verbal, racial abuse, or those who are lost. (laughs) And quite frankly, don't, They have no hope spiritually. Can we mourn? Can we mourn for them? Charles Stanley, who is pastor of the First Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, wrote, when visitors walk through the doors of our church before they hear a message, 
They should feel a message of compassion and kindness and gentleness and loving acceptance. We're surrounded by a sea of hurting people who are afraid to share their hearts and who don't know where to turn for help. And they slip in among us hoping not to be noticed. But they're crying out on the inside for someone to understand them and love them. You know, the Jesus who said, blessed are those who can hurt, (laughs) what for his friends at the graveside of their brother? He was about to bring their brother back to life, but their hearts were so broken, he wept for them. He wept over the city of Jerusalem where God put his name, the city where God put his name, because the city was so far from God's heart. Their lines were not, their hearts were not in line with his. He was so sensitive to the needs of the people around him. You know, part of what Jesus is saying is that I come to the end of me when I actually care about others. And until I've learned the the value of compassionately sharing other people's sorrow and distress and misfortune, I'll never know what real happiness is. (laughs) I have to be able to share that to be able to understand what real happiness is. I I want to share something else that... uh, that I hope will bring you encouragement. These are on your notes. It's, it says a good reminder. This morning is temporary. One day it's going to end. This is not meant to go forever. This isn't an eternity thing. This is a for right now thing in this lifetime kind of a thing because all pain is temporary. God has created within us an innate dissatisfaction, a longing for a better place, a desire for, perfect, for perfection, perfect things. We all long... <laughs> to assemble something whose directions say it's easy to assemble, we all long for that thing to actually be easily assembled. (coughs) Ikea, right? You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) I'm sorry. Picked up a cold this week. We all long for a car that starts the first time we turn it over. We all long for when we go to the grocery store, we want a cart whose wheels go straight, not sideways down the aisle, right? I mean, we're all looking for that. We're all looking for the day when the pain of divorce is just a memory. And abortions don't take the lives of unborn children anymore. And where hatred of other people just because of the color of their skin or their nationality, it doesn't exist anymore in our presence. And I don't know if that sounds impossible to you or not, but Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that our creation, since, it was, since God made it, has been looking for a day Since sin entered the world, creation is looking for this day when all of the evil is eliminated and just becomes history for it. I like the way Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, our light and temporary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. These temporary troubles, they just seem to consume so much of the time when we're in it, but they don't last forever. And so Jesus reminds us in Matthew 5, That if we're able to hurt for ourselves, if we're able to mourn for others, that's that's just for now. That's not forever. (laughs) That we are blessed people. Look at how the message version paraphrases this. We read, you're blessed when you feel you're lost. We're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Because only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. At the end of yourself, when you come to the end of you, you have this opportunity to experience the presence of God in a way you have never experienced it before. And you can't experience it until you get there. So 
God does this in two ways. Number one, on your notes, he comforts through you. And I think it's important for us to recognize this. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says that God comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. So we become this agent of comforting for other people. Do you know how to do that? You pick up the phone. When you hear that something has happened, you actually pick up your phone and you call them and you tell them. Or, or if you're around them, hug them. Do you understand how powerful the human touch is in people's lives, especially when they're hurting? For just another human being to reach and touch them, send them a card. And if you don't know anything else to say in that card, just let them know, man, I'm, I am thinking about you. My heart hurts for you. And I love you. Or if you're in their presence, maybe you just need to not say anything. Because <laughs> they don't need to hear words all the time. Just sit with them. Just, just be close to them so that they know there's someone. They sense physically someone is nearby. And if God has used someone to help give you comfort in a difficult time, can I encourage you to return the favor and reach into someone else's life? But it's interesting when Paul says this, he doesn't just say that God will comfort through us. He says that God will comfort, actually comfort us, which means that he comes to us. God actually will come to us. Two angels sat at a table in the Milky Way Cafe, sipping tea and having a piece of angel food cake, which I guess is what angels eat. And one of them said, oh, man, I almost forgot to tell you what happened this past week. It was the oddest thing. I was on assignment. I was given the task of watching over uh, this small child. She was riding her tricycle down the sidewalk, and either it caught a crack or something happened because the tricycle stopped abruptly, and she went right over the handlebars. And, man, she, she got skinned up, and, and she was bleeding, and the other angel was looking like he was waiting for the punchline. And the first one said, So I'm at this girl's side in the flash of light and she's skinned up, her chin is skinned up, her elbows, and she's crying. And that's when I felt him. The the other angel said, you mean the holy one? He said, he was there. I mean, it was just this little girl who'd skinned her knees, but he was there. And the other angel said, was he checking up on you to make sure that you did what you were supposed to do? And the first angel said, no, he wasn't there for me. He was there for her. And you know what else? I think I saw a tear run down his cheek. Now, as far as I know, that story may not be true. But do you think when our children get hurt that God knows about it? And if he knows about it, do you suppose he's there with them in that moment when they're crying? And that maybe he cries with them just like his son. The reason I wonder that is because his son cried with his friends when they were hurting. And so all of that is because if God will do that for our children, don't you suppose he'll do it for his own? Listen, I don't know what you've been through. 
And maybe, maybe your hurt is over a lost job or over a lost relationship or over lost innocence or lost dreams or lost hope. But if you are a follower of Jesus, he promises his comfort will come to you. His presence will come to you. I like the way Max Lucado writes about this. He says, when my child's feelings are hurt, I tell her she's special. And when my child is injured, I do whatever it takes to make her feel better. When my child is afraid, I won't go to sleep until she is secure. I'm not a superhero. I'm not a superstar. I'm not unusual. I'm a parent. And when a child hurts, a parent does what comes naturally. He helps. And after that, I don't charge a fee. And I don't ask for a favor in return. When my child cries, I don't tell her to suck it up. I don't tell her to act tough, keep a stiff upper lip, nor do I consult a list and ask her why she keeps scraping the same dang knee that she's always scraping. I'm not brilliant, but you don't have to be a child psychologist to know that kids are under construction. You don't have to have the wisdom of Solomon to realize that they didn't ask to be here in the first place and spilt milk can be wiped up and broken plates can be replaced. I'm not a prophet nor the son of one, but something tells me that in the whole scheme of things, the tender moments that I just described are infinitely more valuable than anything I do in front of my congregation. Something tells me that the moments of comfort I give my child are a small, small price to pay for the joy of someday seeing my daughter do for her daughter what her dad did for her. Moments of comfort from a parent. As a father, I can tell you they are the sweetest moments of my day. They come naturally, they come willingly, and they come joyfully. And if all of that is true, if all of the privileges of fatherhood is to comfort a child, then why am I so reluctant to let my heavenly father comfort me? Why do I think he gets tired of hearing about my problems? Why do I think he's too busy for me? Why do I think he's tired of hearing about the same old stuff? Why do I think he groans when he sees me coming? Why do I think he makes a list when I ask for forgiveness and then asks me in return, don't you think you're going to the well a few too many times on that one? Why do I think I have to speak a holy language around him that I don't speak with anyone else? Do I think he's just being poetic when he says that he knows of the needs of the birds of the air and so I don't need to worry about my needs? Why do I not take him seriously when he questions, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Why don't I let my Father do for me what I am more than willing to do for my children? I'm learning that being a parent is better than a course on theology. Being a father is teaching me that when I'm criticized, injured, or afraid, there is a father who is ready to comfort me. And there is a father who will hold me until I'm better, help me until I can live with the hurt, and who will not go to sleep when I'm afraid of waking up and seeing the dark. Ever. And that's enough. Because when you hurt, God is with you. And more than that, he's for you. I think that's part of the reason our time of remembering the cross is so important to us. Why we hold on to it so tightly. Because the cross, every time we come to it, it reminds us that we blew it. We blew it. The cross isn't because of somebody else. 
The cross is because of you and me. And it reminds us that God already knows that. And he loves you so much that in the midst of the mess that we made, you and me, he sent his son to save us. So today, if you're mourning, our time of communion reminds you that God loves you and that he is with you. No matter what is causing that mourning in your life, he's bringing his presence into yours. And if you've come this morning, and maybe you're not mourning right now, it's good. Perhaps it can remind you that God loves you, and then he wants to love through you into the life of somebody else. Because if you're not mourning right now, I guarantee someone in your life is. And they really need the touch of God in their life. And he has sent you. That's why we remember. Let's go to him in prayer. God, thank you for who you are in our lives. And sometimes we underestimate you. Sometimes we we think we're a nuisance in your life. Or that we've done one too many things or gone one step too far that we've allowed what we do to become greater than what Jesus did on the cross. And our time together like this reminds us that that's simply not true and that you never give up on us. And when our hearts are bursting at the seams with sorrow, that God, you come to us and hold us and bring us comfort. Thank you for loving us, God. And we pray that in this moment we hold these emblems that remind us of your son's body and blood that were given for us on the cross. That we'll be reminded that you're a father who loves us and that you're a father who loves through us into the lives of others. And we pray this in Jesus' name.